So in Buddhism, there are sort of two related uh, but different poles in terms of uh, spiritual practice and meditation. On the one side, there's what they call vipassana. On the other side, there's what they call uh, samatha. Now, really, really roughly translated here. Samatha, we would talk about maybe as a relaxation response within us. The ability to ease down, ease off, ease in. Think of it as sort of the warm bath of Buddhist meditation. It's that opportunity to find serenity, not like we heard in the drama through serenity now, but really by just sort of letting go and letting ease into life. Vipassana is a little different. Vipassana, which is also translated as insight, is about peering more deeply into reality so that we might find the kinds of realities within us, disturbances within us, that cause us to lose serenity in the first place. If Samatha is a warm bath, Vipassana asks a different question, which is that because life is very often not a warm bath, life is very often, in fact, for many of us, a raging river. And it is not just enough to know how to get ourselves out of the raging river, but wouldn't it be better to find ourselves not falling into that river, into that torrent in the first place? This is what the Pasana practice can encourage us to do. So we can cultivate a larger, deeper, truer presence, larger, more peaceful, more loving, more wise than our disturbance. So the goal, you could say, is to heal ourselves. To find ourselves cultivated as the kind of people who can face, withstand, and go deeper with whatever confronts us in life. The series that I'm starting today, Words That Work, is my sort of version about practices that I consider Vipassana-like. Not just words that work, but in a deeper way, words that sort of go to work on us, get into the center of who we are, mix some of that stuff up that needs to be mixed up. Words that we can work out with. And like any good workout, we know we're going to feel it afterward. Words that can challenge us because we are worthy of challenge. Words that can deepen us. Today, what I want to talk about with these words from Hillel is on the issue of belonging. Who are we? Whose are we? What do we stand on and what do we stand for? Next week, when I talk about loving kindness meditation, I want to talk about a particular practice through which we can grow bigger hearts and love in ways more deep and more true in this life. And finally, in the last week of this message series, when I talk about the serenity prayer, I want to ask the question about power. How do we use power responsibly, lovingly in this life? Use power wisely. But today I do want to focus on these words from Hillel. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And then to just make it real, real helpful at the end to clarify those first two sentences. If not now, when? Let me tell you a little bit about Hillel, who he was. He taught and he lived 2,000 years ago at a time of drastic change in the religion that he served, the Jewish religion. It was a time in which... The people of Israel no longer really were the people of the nation of Israel. They were about to head out into exile. And so the center of Jewish life went from being the temple in Jerusalem to more local, more regional, associated with different schools of rabbis. And the center of Jewish religious life became the local synagogue. And even more from that, the interiority of every Jew's individual own heart through daily spiritual and ethical practices. Now, Rabbi Hillel 
was known for his school of teaching. And one of his great gifts was the ability to break complex things down and to crystallize them into particular sayings or particular ways of approaching really rich but also naughty spiritual problems. There is a story that once Rabbi Hillel is one of his... um, You could almost say competing rabbis, but a rabbi with a different school, Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai was approached one day by a man who, probably in bad faith, although it's not entirely known, challenged Rabbi Shammai. And he said, I will convert to Judaism, for the man was not a Jew. He said, I will convert to Judaism if you can tell me the kernel, the truth of Torah, of the Jewish sacred texts, while standing on one foot. Now, Rabbi Shammai, believing probably properly that he was being mocked, chose not to take the bait, but in fact chased this guy away with a stick. End of challenge. This man, again perhaps in bad faith, although not, who knows, gave the same challenge to Rabbi Hillel. Tell me all of Torah, all of your sacred scriptures, while standing on one foot, and I will convert. Rabbi Hillel, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the whole of Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and study. (laughs) And it is said, as the story goes, that this man had his bad faith converted into good faith and, you know, decided to actually take Hillel at his word and become an observant Jew. Now, These three questions, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? I like to think of these as sort of uh, Judaism's answer to the Zen koan. (laughs) If you know what Zen koans are, they are stories from the Buddhist tradition that encourage us to seek answers that are not immediately known and apprehended by our reason, by our rational minds. They encourage us to create open space so that we might think in some different categories or perhaps even no category at all. Get us to open up our worldview, as we would say. Most famous Zen koan, or probably the mo- one of the most well-known is, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Think on that for a while. I like this version of this Jewish koan because it seems to raise up at the most obvious level This classic debate. How do I balance the competing interests in my life and in my time? Am I skewing too far to the side of selflessness, being only for others, or am I skewing too far to the side of selfishness, being just for myself? That's, I think, the most obvious way to understand these questions right at first. I want to take them one by one. That first one, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Imagine yourself saying that. I think if you can imagine yourself in your own voice, if you've ever experienced what it's like to be lonely or to feel abandoned or to feel, does anyone got my back? Does anyone have my back? That in fact, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a really deep question. It's a question that people have shared with me in one form or another over many, many years of pastoral counseling. I think I have to stand on my own side because I'm not sure anyone else is going to be there with me. It's a question about loneliness. It's not an intellectual question. It's about who's going to stand with me. Can I stand with myself so at least I know I'm not going to be entirely alone? Who's going to get my back? But there's another way to answer this question, or to ask it at least. And it's not from the position or the feeling or the perspective of a lack of love or a lack 
of concern. It actually comes from a place of strength. Because I think if we want, any of us, you, I, me, all of us, if we want to be a reliable person, we want to be a trustworthy person, we want to be a lovable person, we want to be a person that other people say, this person is here in life, they have a real presence. There's one thing that we have to be able to feel at the center of our being, which is this. And it's something that Hillel's contemporary and fellow rabbi said. Jesus talked about it as the second great commandment. You must love your neighbor, neighbor as you love yourself. He was really saying there, and Hillel was saying the same thing when he was standing on that one foot, to be able to share love at a very deep level, we have to believe, and not just believe conceptually, but actually put some faith and some trust in the idea that we are lovable ourselves. That we are lovable ourselves. If you've ever struggled with loving yourself, you know that this is sometimes a really painful question to answer and not an easy one. Well, Hillel leaves us right there with the first question and goes on to the next one, almost assuming that perhaps we could get a reliable answer to the first one. You can almost imagine the... Oh, go back. Thank you. Almost imagine a but. If I am only for myself... What am I? If I am only on my side, what have I become? The question here, the question here, there's a difference between healthy self-regard, loving ourselves so that we can love others, believing ourselves to be of worth and value, or just straight out old, as they call it, narcissism. The people who look in the mirror and see the beauty there, and it's unimaginable. Oh, the glories of me. I, me, mine, as the Beatles sang. Yum, yum, yum. They didn't sing the yum, yum, yum part, but you know, you get it. I like what William Sloan Coffin said, the great Protestant preacher, anti-war activist, civil rights pioneer. He said, the tiniest package in the world is someone who's all wrapped up in themselves. (laughs) So there's a challenge here, you know? Too much self-regard, and it blocks our ability to truly love others. And actually love ourselves in a meaningful way. Which one is the right answer? How do we set that place? How do we set that bar? How do we draw that line? Should we even try and draw a line for yourself, for another? Are you 51%, 49%? Are you 90%, 10%? And then finally, almost as if it's a joke. If you know anything about the history of comedy... That third beat, that's where the punchline is delivered. So he's asked us, Hillel has, Rabbi Hillel has, these two not really easily answerable questions. And then just to throw us another curveball, if not now, when? Gee, thanks. That's really helpful to us, getting us to the place we want to go to. But I think this is what Hillel was doing. He's recognizing that these questions are supposed to be difficult to answer. And he's trying to expand our definition of how we might answer them. So I think this idea of not, if not now, when, is that we can't wait around for a theoretical answer. We've got to start living our answer to these first two questions to start to understand what the questions really mean. 
Because I don't believe there is any complex moral calculus by which we can apportion our time, divide ourselves, and say, this is the amount that I absolutely owe to others, and this is the amount that I absolutely owe to myself. And if I can just balance these scales in the right way, just seemingly hold on between self and other, then I will have it down. I don't think that's how we answer these questions about love for other, love for ourself. I think, in fact, what Rabbi Hillel is doing us is asking us to change the terms of the equation and the terms of the question. I think he is anticipating his fellow Jew almost 2,000 years later, Einstein, when Einstein said the same consciousness that created a problem cannot be the same kind of consciousness that solves that problem. I think Hillel is asking us to take a step back from this idea of the I, the I who loves self or the I who loves another. Almost like Hillel is saying, you have a beautiful work of art in front of you, but you've got your nose too pressed up to the question. You need to step back, get a different perspective, and then you will start to find your answer. So at this point, to start to get an answer, what I like to do is I like to formulate it and go back to one of my favorite, not just my favorite, but truly one of the best philosophers of the last hundred years of American life, who's Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, whose every utterance was a Zen koan, it seemed, said, when you come to a fork in the road, what do you do? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yogi Berra, Hillel, Einstein, I think what they'd be telling us is with these questions, with the tension between them, with the paradox between them, Who is the I in this question? Who is the I here? Embrace the paradox. Embrace the tension. And ask a deeper question which is really not self-evident. Who we think the I is is not at all obvious. The I that we might think has to segregate itself up into loving others or loving ourselves or feel the tension between those two things. I often think about the tension between the time that we spend on others or the time that we spend on ourselves and thinking that somehow we can easily apportion them up. When I get these emails, and maybe you get them too, I get a lot of them professionally. I know you might get them as well too. Come and network. Do you get these? Come to this networking event, that networking event. And whenever I get one of these emails, I feel that they are just destined to fail. Because the deepest level, I don't think we want to quote-unquote network. I don't think we're bound for just building relationships that will help us get to a certain place. Or if we are, I don't think those relationships will be very, quote-unquote, successful. I don't think they'll be fulfilling. I think that deep down, the core of who we are gets at something that's the heart of one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings, which is that our freedom comes from and it reaches its fulfillment in connection with other people, through other people, because of other people. When we start to recognize the truth of this true interdependence, this I that we might take to be so obvious, such an obvious thing or content, is not. It starts to open up. I think the healthiest I that knows itself as an I, or as a you, as a me, is the I that can see wherever there is life, there is relationship. And that wherever there is a fully formed I, there are always, always, always other eyes alongside that I. 
Just do a little thought experiment if any of you are going to watch the Winter Olympics this week or next week. Someone's very excited about that. I saw that smile. Well, just look at that moment in which the, the, the person, the gold, the silver, the bronze, whatever they win is up there. And, well, imagine the gold because they're really the person, the athlete in the spotlight. And the national anthem of their country is going on. And they stand there. As long as it's not a team sport, they stand there by themselves. But really, if you know anything about athletics, you know that no matter who wins the gold, no matter who wins the medal, that person does not stand there by themselves. You know how many coaches, how many parents, how many friends, how many hours of other people's time were invested in that single person, in that eye, to get them to be the fullest eye that they could be. I think the reason that Hillel is asking us this question, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? I think he's saying there's something deeper than those two questions that oppose each other. There's something deeper than anxiously or even arrogantly saying, I is what is. No. When I think of the anxious I, the anxious I that wants to clutch or hold or refuse to let go of relationships, I think of um, Ed Koch. Remember Ed Koch, the old mayor of New York? Well, when I lived in New York City, I lived just a couple blocks up from his um, his favorite subway stop that he would go, I don't know if you remember when he used to do this, if you were in or at New York, you heard that he used to do this. He used to go there uh, around a rush hour time as people were getting off the subway, off the platform, and he used to greet people saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? Now, uh, actually, Ed Koch is more the anxious eye than, more the arrogant eye than the anxious eye, actually, but actually, if we get to in a second, I think they're sort of related. But that anxious eye question, I know I felt that too often in my life. How am I doing? Tell me I'm good. Please tell me I'm good. Please. Please tell me I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's all I deserve, by the way. <laughs> I think actually about an episode of The Simpsons. Lisa, the, uh, the overachiever, the wonderful daughter, the one who does everything right. Well, uh, school is on strike and her world collapses. <laughs> and everything that she does, whether it's with her parents or the people she meets, please grade me. Please grade me. Tell me I'm good enough. Tell me the I is strong enough. I need a grade. I need that A. It's my crack. You know, that's, that's the stuff I need to let me know that I'm doing okay. But on the other side, there's that arrogant I related to the anxious I. That arrogant I that feels it needs to throw elbows or to always compete because there's just not enough for any of us or all of us. And so that arrogant eye feels we must push each other out by necessity if the eye that is the eye is going to be able to stand. The thing is, the anxious eye and the arrogant eye are just two different sides of the same crummy coin. They are the devalued currency of our own insecurity, of an eye that is in fact very, very narrow and very, very small, an eye that secretly believes that I will have to shoulder all the burden or will take all the blame. And because of that, I also believes that once we're in the spotlight, we should hog it and that we truly stand alone in the winner's circle. That eye is fighting a losing battle. That eye is always trying to divide itself up, trying to ask the question, 
and somehow get fed? Is there enough love? Well, we're here. We're here in Wellsprings, and we're here on a spiritual quest, whether you've been here for a long time or whether it's your first time. I think we're all here in some way or another seeking that deeper, bigger, not grandiose, but bigger I. We experience it. Sometimes we do when we do that opening and I come up, I try to come up with a different way each week of talking about chargeful with the charge of the soul. And one that I like to repeat is the practice of namaste. You know, basically roughly, very roughly translated, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. That I within myself that is full and whole and sufficient recognizes the same capacity within you. And so we bow to each other because we do not need to compete with each other. Many traditions call it a lot of different things. Our own tradition at its best comes from the words of Emerson, from his wonderful concept, his wonderful idea, and even more than that, an idea, it's a reality, of what he called the oversoul. He said, within us, within I, within I, within us is the soul of the whole. Within us is the wise silence. Within us, the universal beauty to which every part and to which every particle is equally related. Within us is the eternal one. That I that exists with some understanding that it is connected has the freedom and the liberty, and it really is liberating, of knowing that it does not exist to I or you or me or any of us individually alone. The fullest expression of the I that we can be and that we really are is gratitude for all the other eyes that are around us. And so bringing it down and bringing it back to this Valentine's Day, beyond the sort of hearts and the flowers and the candy, and I love all those things, I'm a sentimentalist, but that sort of the love beyond the trappings, you know? As a minister, I have the, the, the gift, the duty, the uh, obligation, and also the privilege of being able to preside at uh, the very moment when people with their communities offer their promises between their two eyes and commit themselves to living together and being as a couple. About six to eight months ago, sometime last fall, I came to a, an awareness that, in fact, I was being complicit. I was being complicit in perpetuating a system in which some eyes mattered a hell of a lot more than other eyes did. Now, full equality for our gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgendered people, this has always been a core commitment of mine in my ministry. But, you know, when you bring something home and you recognize, as I did, that in fact, by signing that document, that marriage license, I was participating in a system that said some people matter more than others. And I really wrestled with it. Should I stop, as some of my colleagues have, and I understand this decision, should I stop doing weddings altogether? Sort of an act of civil disobedience, a small way. Finally, I decided that I did not want to punish loving straight couples, loving heterosexual couples, because the society in which we lived was unjust. But I made a decision that I couldn't just say, well, because, you know, society sanctions your love, 
but not the love of same-sex couples that somehow you just get gone and we're not going to talk about it. We are going to talk about it. And so what I now ask of every couple whose wedding I do, those couples whose weddings are approved by law, is that they will take part of the funds they would pay me and they will donate those funds to something like Equality Pennsylvania, a group that exists and works and lives for the full equality of all of our citizens, especially marriage equality. We like to sing here, and it's a great song. We do an amazing version of it. Uh, Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, the old gospel, the old spiritual civil rights tune. It's nice to sing those songs, and we unfortunately have had to update those after some sort of high-profile defeats for equality. California and Maine, we can add New Jersey to the list now. Um, And it's good to sing that song, but singing the song doesn't do enough, in my opinion. I think for those of us who really do believe that equality must be for all, it cannot just be for some, or it doesn't deserve the name equality, have to take a deeper step, a fuller step. So now I'm going to ask you to show that slide. This is a, a larger campaign within our spiritual movement called Standing on the Side of Love. It has uh, many different focuses, but the focus I want to talk about today is about marriage equality. There are two bills pending in the Pennsylvania legislature, one which defines marriage as full and complete under and with the law for all loving, would define it as equal for all loving adult couples. And another bill, which would write into law, I believe, absolute and completely vile discrimination, saying that marriage will only and forever be, according to the state constitution of Pennsylvania, between just one man and one woman. I'm going to ask you, if you believe as I do today, to do something. It's a small thing, but it is an action that declares yourself. You will see at the back of our meeting space. I'll be back there. Casey, if you'll raise your hand, we'll be back there as well. And you'll see this little flyer that says, Standing on the Side of Love. You can write your senator, your representative, and then you sign your name. And it says that you believe in full marriage equality for all loving adults in our state. Gay or straight, young or old, full equality. Now, this is just one issue, and it's an issue particularly important to me an issue that has stood at the heart of our larger religious movement for some time. But whatever the issue is, whenever we commit ourselves fully to another person's eye, to another person's full personhood and full being, we realize a most profound and liberating truth, which is that when we make commitments that count and commitments that matter, for the happiness and for the well-being of another I, we are for ourselves as well in the deepest way possible. To be truly for another person, not just for their political rights, as important as that is, but for their full capacity to flourish, and we really mean it, we are also voting with our feet and casting our lot that we will flourish as well. Now, beyond just a particular action or beyond just a particular thought or a particular issue, the question is, how do we sustain this? 
the sense of being so deeply for ourselves that the boundaries between ourselves and other eyes start to drop away. Then we can experience a deeper communion. Because Hillel's question in the deepest way is not just about an action or an attitude. It's about entering life in a deeper relationship. It's a spiritual question about really cultivating intimacy with all that is and with whom all as they are. One of my favorite sort of modern mystics is a guy named Richard Rohr. He's a really cool, radical Catholic priest. And the fact that I'm about to quote him so approvingly, it shows him in what, in what stead he now stands within his own hierarchy of his own church. He's always one of those uh, sort of radical priests who's always in danger of getting booted out. Richard Rohr is talking about, and especially on this Valentine's Day, to think about it not in a romantic way. He's talking about what it is like to exist inside of and in relationship to what he calls great love. When we are inside of great love, he writes, we have a much stronger possibility of surrendering our ego controls and opening ourselves up to the wider, in fact, the whole field of life. Great love makes us willing to risk and to begin holding nothing back. The feeling of fusion or acceptance by another or the other temporarily at least overcomes our terrible sense of aloneness, of separateness, of fear. The ecstasy of this kind of spiritual union allows us to let down our barriers and see things from inside a perspective of a new kind of wholeness and a new kind of happiness, at least just for a while. But as we all know, it's really tough to make this honeymoon last. To remain regularly, permanently in love, something else is needed. Some level of what we call a, the mystical. Whether it's nature or consciousness or whether we call that relationship God. Next week, what I want to do is shift some focus here and talk about loving kindness, meditation, as part of these words that work, because that is one way, one practice by which we can go deeper into this relationship and become a participant in great love. Because in this deeper relationship with reality, which is never perfected and into which we can always grow deeper, we start to recognize that the burdens and the fears and the insecurities of being an eye set apart, we start to become a different kind of eye. We are still ourselves, and we can become much more. Thomas Merton, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, he says that when we can live in this way, that finally, at the end, finally we will know the truth that it is the reality, the reality, not the idea, the reality of personal relationships that can save us. It's a challenge, of course, to live in this way. It's a deep challenge, and it's not easy for any of us, and it's not easy for me. That's why this message series is called Words That Work. <laughs> words that work on us. Words that will work us out. But if we can direct our orientations and our energies in this way, we will find our eye 
your eye. That that eye starts to have its boundaries placed down. And that eye starts to be completed. Not in some Jerry Maguire kind of romantic sense. But in a deeper way. That our gifts can be offered and our gifts can be received at the deepest level. That our loneliness can abate. That our separateness might fade away. And we might see each other. As I are. And as I are. And as I am. And as we are. And in that, we know. If not now, when? Now is the time to begin that kind of work. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Eternal I. May we exist in relationship with this life, in relationship to that deeper animating mystery, as the spokes from the wheel might be directed outward, but always connected inward at their core. May we truly stand on the side of love, not for a moment or for a movement or for an idea, but because by standing on the side of love, we stand most profoundly as most meaningfully within our own very lives. May we, by standing on the side of love, also move in the direction of love as love will guide us, as peace will invite us. May we in this moment recognize the shape of our own eye, fearful or whole, damaged or healed. May we accept the eye that is here right now. We know truly, if not now, when. Let us begin from where we are. Let us begin with who we are. Let us know the I that we are. May we stand, may we walk, may we be truly on the side of love. Amen.